Welcome to this episode of the Plant Breeding Stories podcast, where I talk to leading lights in plant breeding, asking what they do, what makes them tick, and what fascinates them about the world of plants. I'm your host, Hannah Senior of PBS International, world leaders in pollination control. We design and produce specialist pollination bags and tents used by plant breeders and seed producers all around the world. And through this, I've been privileged to get a unique perspective on how plant breeding globally affects our diets, farming systems and the environment. I'm excited to share a little of this with you as we meet some of the amazing people who make plant breeding their life's work. Today, I'm talking to Laurie McKenzie, Research and Education Associate with the Organic Seed Alliance. In this episode, we talk about why seed bred specifically for organic production systems is so important. We dig into why the art of plant breeding, alongside the science of course, is so critical for this discipline. And Laurie shares her enthusiasm for some truly beautiful carrots. Like so many of the guests we talk to, Laurie's passion and enthusiasm for her work comes through really clearly in this conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about you. I am Laurie McKenzie, and I'm a research and education associate for the Pacific Northwest region here at Organic Sea Alliance. So I am a Pacific Northwest native girl. I was born and raised in Oregon, and I have always been into things that are related to the environment and being outside and environmental sustainability and adventures. I studied environmental studies and when I graduated I had the ambition and dream to run and manage a CSA farm which is a community supported agriculture where you essentially buy a share and then every week you get a pickup or a delivery of a box of food and I just really like that model of farming and when I moved back to the Pacific Northwest and worked on a farm that did that, I realized how much work farming is and what a toll it can take just on your livelihood and your relationships and uh, what, what a challenging career it is and decided that maybe that wasn't exactly what I wanted to do. And um, I really love the lifestyle of farming, but I didn't love how consuming it was. And that was an unanticipated and, and big challenge for me. So how did you make the jump from farming into plant breeding? While I was working on this CSA farm, I met um, Frank and Karen Morton, who have a seed company called Wild Garden Seed. And I started working with them. I really loved and appreciated their approach to things. I, I didn't really have any particular interest in growing seed. I, I liked them as people, and I found them interesting, and we worked from 9 to 5. We never had to start at 6 and end at 9, and I really appreciated that. And So I, I got into working with them, and then I really got hooked by growing seed. Also did some plant breeding and have branched out since then. This was back in the early 2000s, so almost 20 years ago. You told me before a little bit about um, the pepper breeding that went on there. Just tell me a bit about that because that was really vivid. Yeah, so it was great. What I really learned from Frank that I'm super grateful for was both the art of plant breeding and just the engagement in the process and the courage and the creativity and the curiosity 
to take on a project. And the great example of that is the Pepper Project, where one of the farmers at the farm where Frank grew a lot of his, grew all of his commercial seed at the time, she came to him and said, hey, I have this hybrid pepper that I really love. It was a red roasting, Italian roasting pepper called La Paris. It was a hybrid and it was gone. She could not get seed of it anymore. It had been dropped by the seed company. And she said, hey, Frank, can you breed something out of this? And Frank had no experience with peppers. He had, you know, little experience with any kind of fruit seed. And he said, sure, I'll give it a try. And for several years, he just grew it out and he kind of grouped it by what he saw. And he was very lucky, as was she, that they had started with a hybrid that just had a lot of genetic diversity and had very good genetics and very good background. And so out of this red roasting pepper, Frank got red roasting peppers that were smooth, red roasting peppers that were wrinkled, ones that were long and skinny, ones that were short and fat, ones that were bell types. He also got orange peppers and yellow peppers and all these different shapes and configurations. And each year he would take these fruits and he would kind of group them like, okay, at this end of the field are all the reds. And at this end of the field are all the yellows. And he knew that you know there would be some crossing and that there would be some self-pollination. And so Things that he wanted to keep the same or he liked that type, he would kind of put them farther away from other things or things that he thought might be cool if they crossed together, mixed up a little bit, they could go right next to each other. So it was really this really fun sort of engaged evolution. Frank was just working with what he saw and making the best decisions that he sort of intuitively knew to make based on his experience and what he was seeing. I think that that really formed a big part of my foundation and interest in plant breeding, just watching that evolution happen and watching those plants show the diversity. And now I think Frank has at least a dozen, if not more, commercialized stable varieties that he has bred out of that one hybrid. <laughs> he got very lucky. Not every hybrid dehybridization or breeding out of a hybrid project will go that well. So tell me, how did you get from that sort of initial experience of this is really interesting, I, you know, I'm really engaged in this to working with the Organic Seed Alliance? When I was working with Frank, I started to get really excited and interested in plant breeding and seed production. I wanted to know why these things were happening and how they were happening. And so I started looking at going back to school and eventually landed a master's degree in organic plant breeding at Oregon State University. Mm -hmm. And I had gotten to know some of the folks who worked at Organic Seed Alliance when I was working with Frank, because they are friends and collaborators, and Frank was actually on the board of Organic Seed Alliance. So I knew of the organization, and through my graduate work, I got to know more of the organization and more people. And particularly this woman, Michaela Crawley, who is now my boss, I was very enamored with her. Um, she's a very just poised and powerful and intelligent person. And I just was a little starry eyed. And as I finished my master's degree, I really didn't know what my ideal job was. I could have told you I want to work with plant breeders. I'm not sure I want to be a plant breeder. I don't want to be in the lab. I want to be in the field actually working with touching plants. 
I want to be able to do some sort of teaching, but I don't want to be in a classroom. So I just, I didn't know what that job was. So shortly after that, I was sort of job hunting. I had posted on social media. I had gotten an interview and was going to fly out to New York for an extension position with with Cornell University. And I, I believe I'm remembering right that Michaela saw that post and called me and said, hey, uh, I'd really love it if you could come work with OSA. I don't really have a position, but I could offer you a six-month internship. I knew that OSA would be a good fit for me, and um, I didn't really want to move to New York. I wanted to stay close to home, so it worked out. And tell me, what is the Organic Seed Alliance? How does it work? Great question. Organic Seed Alliance is an organization that works on three sort of main areas. We're a nonprofit organization and we work on advocacy, education, and research. I would say our overarching goal is really to help farmers and growers be successful and to see more organic and sustainable seed produced in the world. And then we also collaborate with a lot of universities, public breeders, other organizations on research. So we work a lot with Cornell University, Purdue University in Indiana, University of Wisconsin-Madison, Washington State University, Oregon State University. And those are universities that have pretty solid, either organic or sustainably focused programs. And, And you're breeding crops specifically to be grown in organic systems. Is that, does that sit under the research element? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's under both the research and the education elements to Organic Seed Alliance. The education element go to a lot of conferences and present both on the research that we do and also on plant breeding and how to grow seed and how to clean and store and produce quality, high-yielding, robust seed. The thing I'm itching to ask you is the question that I asked myself when you presented at the National Association of Plant Breeders meeting a few years back, which is, why do you need breeding specifically for the organic system? Yeah. Because at the time, I was like, oh, I'd never thought about that before. So that would be a good place to dig into things. Yeah, well, there's a lot of layers (laughs) to that, I would say. Genetics are really important in having the appropriate genetics for The farming system and the challenges that you're facing in your production system is key to your success. In the United States, as I assume is probably true in much of the world, the vast majority of our agriculture is conventional and organic is a growing and and burgeoning faction of that, but it's still relatively small. But the main, one of the big differences that I see is that conventional systems have all of these chemical and synthetic options for fertility and crop protection, pest protection that you don't have available in organic systems. And organic systems then tend to use a a wide array of options to meet those fertility and crop and pest challenge issues. So, you know, some farms use animals and manure and compost. And what that does is create a really wide breadth of diversity across all organic farms. 
whereas conventional systems tend to be more similar farm to farm in comparison to organic. So you're dealing with a kind of a wider range, I think, of environments and challenges. And the system in organic, sustainable, resilient agriculture tends to be more biologically complex because instead of providing the need for nutrition and protection with chemicals and inputs, you are relying on this natural ecosystem to provide those services to the plants. And therefore, the plants need to use sort of different amounts of their energy or different amounts of their genetics to be successful. Can you give me an example? One example that I think really shows that very clearly is Lori Hoagland, who's a researcher at Purdue University. I saw her present once on some research about soybeans and soybean breeding in the modern era under conventional conditions where you have a lot of synthetic nitrogen available. So those those modern soybean varieties, because they have been provided all this nitrogen, they actually haven't needed to be putting energy into attracting microorganisms that distill and provide nitrogen in the soil. So, you know, why put energy into something you don't need is the theory. Whereas in organic systems, you're not providing all of that synthetic, easily available, you know, just suck it right up nitrogen. So those plants need to be able to do that for themselves. So they need to be able to make these associations with the mycorrhiza that provide them with the nitrogen. So our, our breeding and the environment that we do our breeding in does shape the genetics and the ability of these plants to perform in these different systems. So if you're breeding for this range of environments in the organic system, does that mean you need to do a lot more trials to establish whether a, vi- a variety is going to thrive in order to do organic breedings? Is that an example of a difference between an organic breeding program and a conventional one? Um, I, my instinct is to say yes, but. What you're breeding for are resilient, capable plants, and that those plants are capable of accessing nutrients, uptaking them efficiently, being able to withstand both biotic and abiotic stressors. And that if you have a strong, resilient plant, it is more likely to be able to do well over a range of environments. That said, Um, Yeah, when you are trying to create a variety that is broadly adapted to a wide range of differences, and you know not all those differences are huge. um, Certainly, a wider trialing net is going to give you more confidence and more information that 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 variety, that crop, is is capable of producing well across a wide range. Um, And I think that's honestly true in conventional and organic systems. You know, a lot of what we talk about and a lot of what we prioritize in our breeding work and our education work are certainly the same things that are prioritized in conventional breeding. You know, everybody wants productivity, yield, disease resistance, pest resistance, drought tolerance, salt tolerance. You know, those things are always going to be important, regardless of what kind of system you're breeding for. You know, we we tend to think of conventional and organic at being at odds with each other or you know kind of set against each other and I think there's actually a lot of complement 
parity there. You know, we're, we're all trying to feed people. We're all trying to do good work. And in my view, the more collaboration and kind of the more we can learn from each other, the better we're all going to be. You're listening to Plant Breeding Stories, brought to you by PBS International, world leaders in pollination control. We're exploring the personal stories behind people who've dedicated their careers to plant breeding, helping us to more productive plants, greater food security, and more sustainable agriculture. Now, back to the podcast. Are there any differences in the way that you go about the breeding in an organic program compared to a conventional one? You know, you sort of described a lot of the breeding objectives are very consistent, albeit um, the environment in which those varieties are going to be grown has differences. But the way you go about it, are there differences? The main difference between conventional and certainly certified organic breeding work are the techniques that you can use. And in certified organic breeding, you're not allowed to use any genetic engineering. And there are discussions about what that means. You know, sometimes it's very clear which tools and techniques fit under the sort of ethos and system of organic. And there are definitely some gray areas. And there are definitely varieties out there that have been bred and created with techniques that are not as clearly or or debatably genetic engineering, you know, kind of the the general line in the sand is, could this happen naturally? Is, Is this a technique that is respecting natural reproductive barriers? If we weren't here, is this a combination that could somehow get together and produce itself with no human intervention? Uh, that's kind of a first level line in the sand. Uh, but then, of course, it does get much more nuanced as you dig down into a bunch of the tools. But I would say that's the biggest difference. You know, both conventional and organic breeders are going to be using some combination of field based techniques and tools and observations and lab based work. Uh, molecular markers is a great example that's used both in organic breeding and conventional breeding. It's a great way to assess disease and important resistance factors. At Organic Seed Alliance, we don't have any uh, of our own lab equipment or lab breeding work. We do all of our breeding work as field-based work. It's referred to often as classical breeding, where essentially you're going out in the field and you're looking at the plants and you're choosing ones that you like and taking out ones that you don't and moving the genetics forward with the plants that you've selected. And there's a number of different approaches that we take to do that. What crops do you work with? I am really lucky. I get to work with a lot of different crops. Some of that is based on the grant work that we do and what our grant partners are experts at. And some of that is based on what farmers want and need and have come and asked us to do or asked for collaboration. Currently, I'm working on cabbage, purple sprouting broccoli, Carrots, sweet corn, dry corn, Swiss chard, onions, spinach, and a little bit on tomatoes. That is quite a diversity of crops. Yeah, and I'm sure I'm forgetting something. And you said it was dictated by the research grants and the needs of farmers. So how do the seeds or the varieties that you produce get into the hands of those farmers? So mostly it's through seed companies. We don't actually produce any commercial seed. We don't sell any seed to anyone directly. We do commercial release with a number of seed companies. 
in the U.S. And we, every year, we send out a list to the seed companies that are in our database, essentially, and say, these are the varieties and these are the seeds that we have available this year for you to try and take a look at. And then they come back to us and say, hey, we're really interested in X, Y, and Z. We would really like to commercialize this one. Um, and then we kind of proceed from there. And how do their needs and preferences get fed back into the programs that you're working on? One of the ways we do that, every five years, we do a big survey and a big report called the State of Organic Seed, where we survey thousands of farmers across the nation and do listening sessions and, and gather a bunch of data about how, how organic seed is being used and what organic farmers need from organic seed. And, and that informs a lot of our work. We also do listening sessions and have you know, regular meetings with our regional groups of farmers in areas where we have staff and ask them and send out surveys about what crops do you feel like need attention and what are the what are the qualities and what are the areas that you see a lack in or what do you want improved. And and the range of crops that you mentioned, there's a lot of vegetable crops in there, sweet corn and peppers and things like that. Does that mean that when you're doing the work, you're thinking about the sort of sensory aspects? Previously, you sort of came, you know, you mentioned a list of breeding targets in terms of yield and disease resistance and drought resistance and all those things. But are you also putting more focus on the sensory properties, the appearance or the flavor and so on of the, and the texture of the of the crops that you're breeding does that and does that feed through that cycle of distribution as well it's not a conventional versus organic difference but maybe a large industrial versus um, smaller medium scale and that's what we tend to breed towards shelf life shipability those things take less of a priority and we can put a higher priority on flavor culinary quality, texture, more of the, the eating experience. Oh, I see. That's interesting. A bit of a side note, you know, as we get more into assessing culinary quality and including that in our breeding work, we learn that there are you know, a lot of different ways to use these foods that we work on. Um, carrots is one of my favorite, and it's also in the forefront of my mind because I'm about to go to a winter nursery trip uh, for harvest, which is one of my favorite trips of the year. And especially with the colored carrots, you know, there are a lot of cultural uses of colored carrots that are that are just really widely variable and different. All right. Like what? Well, we have a collaborator who's a, sort of a new collaborator from the University of California, Davis, I believe, um, Jaspreet Sidhu, and she's from India. And she has a lot of just personal um, family experience with red carrots and red carrots and Indian cuisine and carrots and Indian cuisine are often cooked and they're they're used in a lot of desserts and they're just they're used differently than we use carrots in this country and in the U.S. we tend to use carrots as fresh raw um, you know we we do cook them but I primarily they tend to be raw in salads and there's just a lot more you can do with them and and with the colored carrots, they have just gotten less breeding time and attention because 
a lot of the breeding expertise in our country has gone towards orange carrots because that's what we primarily eat. So the colored carrots tend to have different flavor profiles than the orange carrots. Orange carrots, I would say, have generally been bred to be very sweet and very crisp. And the red carrots and the purple carrots in particular tend to be kind of piney, not as crisp, denser in texture, more variable. But those could actually be really good qualities for cooking and for roasting. And those flavor profiles change when you cook them in various different ways. The long way of saying there's also a lot of education opportunity to teach people new and different ways to think about flavor profiles and culinary uses and cooking versus not cooking or so you know I, I think that's true of a lot of crops and I just I think there's really a lot of opportunity and energy there and I think people especially now in COVID times when you're home more you're trying not to go out to the store as much maybe people are a little more creative they're online a lot more so there's opportunity to really I don't know dig a little deeper into some new and creative ways to prepare our food different ways of doing things yeah you talked earlier about complementary territory between conventional and organic agriculture. And although I would argue there's an increasing convergence between these two systems, I think there is often a temptation to put them at odds with each other. And yet I'm struck that some of the things you've talked about, perhaps the underlying ethos, does sound rather different to more conventional breeding programs. Do you see this as a difference of emphasis or something more fundamental? Yeah, I do think that it's a different approach to ultimately the same goal. I feel like I've heard or encountered a lot in the broader scope of things that people who are conventionally focused say organic will never feed the world. You know, the yields aren't anywhere near what we would need to feed the world. I don't think we want any one system to be the only way that we grow and produce food. I think we need a diversity of genetics, of approaches, of systems, of understandings. You know, fundamentally, diversity is what keeps everything on our planet alive and thriving, right? I do want to believe, and I do believe that anyone who is breeding and growing food and seeds is doing a good thing. They are trying to feed people and do it in a way that keeps the environment and people thriving. And I, I agree. I think that that setting them at odds just really sets all of us back. That if we can find ways to find those points of convergence and find those points of connection, that we can learn from each other and we can share I think another highlight that's pretty distinct between the conventional and organic worlds, if you will, is intellectual property protection. You see a lot more restrictive intellectual property protection in commodity crops. I don't know in the conventional world what kind of discussions are going on around intellectual property, but there are a lot of discussions, at least in, in my world, the organic world, where there are discussions about what's appropriate. Intellectual property protection in and of itself is not a bad thing, right? You know, if you breed a variety, that takes a lot of time and a lot of resources and a lot of energy. And you deserve to, to have some sort of protection that allows you to recoup that and, and to make a living off of that. And at the same time, I think that 
us at the Organic Seed Alliance and also a lot of the discussion that I hear in the, the broader organic world is how do we do this in a way that's ethical and still provides the opportunity for farmers and breeders to share and collaborate? Because really, you know, sharing genetics, being able to make crosses and make new selections, that's how we create new things and how we move forward with both things that are new and inspiring and things that are are new to meet new challenges. And the more that those genetics get tied up and restricted, and the less we can do that, the harder it's going to be for all of us. That's where I see the biggest sticking point. There's a lot more sort of trade secrets, intellectual property protection, and less transparency, I think, in the conventional world compared to the organic world. That also begs a question for me about what you use as your starting material. I mean, where do you get the germplasm from to even begin the journey? Given there's a lot of intellectual property protection around plant varieties and given a lot of the existing advanced varieties were developed for conventional systems, what do you use to start a breeding program in organic? We are really lucky to have a lot of collaborators. And I would say a lot of the material for the projects that we're currently working on comes from university and public breeding programs. Some of the material I I inherited from predecessors who brought it with them. We also sometimes access the GRIN system, which in the United States is the public germplasm repository system. We have actually have a trial in the field right now of some cabbage that came from the French seed bank. So there's a lot of interesting material there. Those are public collections that are not always or necessarily modern varieties. Some of them are land races, some of them are pretty wild. So it's really important to do some variety trialing and, and looking at them. And so it's it's widely variable. Mm, no no one answer. Yeah, no one answer. Tell me what are you most proud of so far in your career? Crop wise, the thing that I'm most proud of are some purple carrots that <laughs> we are working with. Um, Several years ago, I got to go to this winter nursery in Southern California with Dr. Phil Simon, and I got to see this breadth of incredible, amazing carrot material that is unlike anything I've ever seen. we're We're seeing more colored carrots on the market than we were 10 years ago, for sure. So, but he has material that is yellow and pink and purple and purple, yellow, and purple, and yellow with purple cores, and it's incredibly beautiful and also tastes good. (laughs) And I really got inspired to dig in on that and get some more of that material into our projects, into our trials, and into our breeding work. And we have one, it's still a pretty early generation population, uh, but we've sent it out to several seed companies who are really excited about it. Does it have a name? Uh, right now, it's just called PYP Population, which stands for Purple, <laughs> Yellow, Purple. It does not have does not have a name yet, but it just it produces some really beautiful carrots that taste good, and I speak not only to the palate but to the imagination. You know, it's kind of like Romanesco cauliflower comes to mind. You know, it's just it's so pretty you almost don't want to eat it. Sometimes Swiss chard is like that. Like the stems of Swiss chard can just be so vibrantly beautiful. So I'm really excited that I I think that that will be out in the marketplace soon, uh, maybe even sooner than I was anticipating. That's really exciting. You'll have to, um, you'll have to send me a photograph afterwards. (laughs) I have 
I have hundreds, actually. <laughs> the first year I went down to the research station, they, the team, Dr. Simon's team, all just were giggling at me because I would cut open these carrots and literally just laugh out loud <laughs> and just say, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, it's so beautiful. I had 600 pictures the first day. <laughs> That's really quite, quite enthusiastic. Yeah, yes, the enthusiasm was a little off the charts. And and six years later, we're about to go back next week. I, I still feel that way. They're astonishing to me. And I just, I can't wait to share that more broadly with consumers at large, I guess. Well, on that note, um, that feels like a good place to wrap things up. So thank you very much for your time today. Um, Laurie McKenzie of the Organic Seed Alliance. You're most welcome. Thank you so much, Hannah. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. You've been listening to Plant Breeding Stories by PBS International, and I'm your host, Hannah Senior. Plant breeding is a pretty specialist podcast topic, which can make it difficult for people who share our interest in this kind of thing to find it. So if you've enjoyed the podcast, recommend it to your friends and colleagues, and please help others in the plant science community to find it by rating this episode and subscribing to the series. I'd love to hear from you if you want to suggest people you'd like me to interview. You can contact me on Twitter at PBSint or on Instagram at PBS underscore int. Until next time, stay well.